0: Let me uh, begin with a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll get going. Father God, I thank you so much for the ability to come here to church. Lord, you've given us the breath that's in our lungs this morning. Surely in your justice, you would have, you would be at no fault if you took us during the night. But Lord, you have given us another day and uh, Lord, you, as I said, you supply the breath that's in our lungs just as you supplied Adam, the breath that was in his lungs, the heart which beats, which acts as such an, as sensitive and necessary (laughs) organ, Lord, even you control that aspect of our lives. Lord, as we are going to discuss today the state of man after death and after the resurrection, we know from your word, Lord, that it's been appointed that all men must die. And afterwards comes judgment. Lord, we know that you are sovereign even over death. Lord, and we take refuge and we take comfort In that reality, because you are a holy and a just God. A just and faithful and good God who does not sin against his people. A God whom we can trust even as we face death. Lord, we thank you so much for this church, which stands on the sufficiency of scripture. Confessions from the 1689 are helpful in the sense that they are guardrails, Lord, and you have provided your church confessions to help them even. Lord, help us learn something today with attentive minds and attentive hearts. Lord, I pray that you'll, uh, by the conclusion of this lesson, Lord, that your saints will remember more about your glory more about your sovereignty, more about your goodness, and less about this fallible man teaching them. We love you. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ in whom we have hope in life and in death. It's in his name I pray. Amen. All right, so I left off the title of uh, chapter 31, but it's going to be, I said it during the prayer, it's of the state of man after death and of the resurrection from the dead. And uh, I actually got to teach this not from the perspective of a 1689, but from the perspective of eschatology to my seniors, uh, a Bible class that I teach at the school uh, where I'm employed. So uh, in fact, a lot of stuff that I used for this, I also used for that. And while there are um, differences in um, those in attendance, I pray as I did then that this would be something that would be helpful for you. A lot of this you are already going to know. Some of this you may you may be learned for the, learning for the first time. Um, so for the stuff that we already know, I hope that it would conclude in praise and thankfulness to God as well as for the stuff that you learned. The word eschatology, this is under point number one. And for the sake of us having enough time to do this, I'm kind of skipping over the reading of this part. We're going to be appealing back to it, but we're not going to take the time to read it. The word eschatology is the combination of two Greek words. Some of you may know this already. Praise be to God. Your Greek is probably better than mine. The first word is eschatos, which means last or last in a series. Eschatos, e-s. T-H-A-T-O-S. Last, last in the series or final? Would anyone like to guess what the second word is? Think of the word eschatology. Where would we derive that second word from? Would you say when? Logos, Absolutely. G-O-S. Logos is your second word there, which we know Logos from the book of John. John 1, in the beginning, was the word. So this word should not be too foreign to us. It means a word, a word about, or a study of. eschatology is the study of the doctrine of last things. Last things is your final blank there. What's interesting about the 1689 and chapter 31, and as, as we've been teaching this, there's been a lot, well, not a lot, there's been some differences, right? We learned from week one, is that last year, Andrew? Maybe the year before? It's all kind of bleeding together. Um, we learned that this confession was written from which two confessions? Andrew knows, but he's going to let others answer. Which two confessions? I'll give you a hint. One was by the the Presbyterians. The other is by the Congregationalists. John? Savoy and Westminster. Very good. Savoy Declaration and the Westminster. And believe it or not, this chapter 31 did not change anything. Save of maybe some punctuation, some different words, essentially it is the same. The Baptists agree with the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists about the state of man after death. Notice what I didn't say there. We, there's not agreement there, and this is a discussion for a much later date, maybe whenever Dr. Waldron comes and visits us in some t- uh, September but about the millennia, okay? Would you agree G- Jesus' second coming is the millennia, is it an actual thing? Okay, these are the differences that we have with these other denominations, but for the sake of the state of death for man, and as far as the general resurrection, this is where we agree so real quick, I'd love to hear from a few of you, what are some common misconceptions about death, heaven and hell that maybe you've heard or you used to believe? That when you die, you go to some waiting area up in the sky. So a the Roman Catholics would refer to that as purgatory, okay? Okay. Any any other misconceptions that you've heard of or used to believe?
1: It's not as common, but I have heard people say that when um, if you're an unbeliever and you go to hell, instead of um, an eternity in torment, your soul is actually destroyed and you cease to exist.
0: We're actually going to refer to that a little bit later. Thank you, Ben. That's good. Annihilationism. That's good. Where the soul is annihilated. Okay. Anything else? I'm surprised we ha- I haven't heard this yet. What about people who pass away become angels? Have we heard of that one before? Where it's, it's said with a lot of emotion and it's said with probably really good intent, but they're in a much better place and they've received their angels' wings. And you see this on some kind of social media post and you're like, you don't want to be that actually guy where you're like, I'm going to hold off and I'm going to scroll right past, right? You don't want to be that guy? I've been there. So there's another one that we're going to touch on as well. Purgatory, very briefly, annihilationism and soul sleep. I believe soul sleep is one that's very common with the Seventh-day Adventists. Okay? Soul sleep. So why should we study eschatology? I thought it would be helpful to hear from a pastor and professor, David Murray, and from his list of practical reasons why we should study eschatology. I have these four for us today. So we should study last things or eschatology because it helps us worship God. Should not worship be at the end of all theology? That's what it should lead to. Should it not? Absolutely. But if there is anything that should lead us to worship God more, should it not be eschatology? We're talking about the resurrection, the defeat of Satan, the final and perfect judgment, the new heavens and the new earth, communion with Christ face to face, right? This should most definitely lead us to worship God. We should study last things because it motivates us to serve with zeal. This motivation comes from whenever we consider the great hope that we have in Christ, the blessedness of heaven, the need that we have as great sinners We should be motivated with a greater passion, knowing the depravity of our own souls, save for the grace of God to preach the gospel to those who are lost. So it should motivate us. We should study last things because it helps us to have hope in the midst of trouble. As we are experiencing right now, and most assuredly the church has experienced from its inception, trials, disease, pain, injustices. These are really tough things to deal with. So whenever we think about eschatology and the resurrection to new life, this should bring us hope. We should study last things lastly because it helps us to anticipate heaven. Eschatology encourages us to look beyond this world and long for eternal life with Christ and his people. So now we are going to read paragraph one. And only paragraph one. Could I have somebody read that? Should be on page one. Could I have some somebody read that for me, please? I agree. Yeah, whomever. Go ahead and take off. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. So now we're going to jump into the state of man after death. In other words, what happens after death? In the New Testament, in my opinion, the most um, extended depiction that we can get comes from the book of Luke. Luke's Gospel. Let's go there. Luke's Gospel chapter 16. This is going to be with the parable. The rich man and Lazarus. Again, there's many passages that we can come to the confession uses this passage as well. I thought it would be helpful for us to really unpack this parable here. Could I have somebody read for us? We can break it up into two. How about we do that? One reader, read for me verse 19 through 25. The other 26 through 31. Thank you, sir. Go ahead, Russ.
2: There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and lived with sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in life manner bad bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish.
0: Thank you, sir. 26 through 31. Thank you, Justin.
1: And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to from here to you may may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, father, send. Then I beg you, father, send to to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them. I let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead.
0: Thank you, gentlemen. So, the rich man and the Lazarus, this parable, what does it teach us about what happens after death? Well, it illustrates how death, I, uh, I believe I put that there in your notes, how death is the end of physical life and the separation of body and soul. It's the end of physical life and the separation of body and soul. Our confession agrees with this statement, which we we just heard in paragraph one just a little bit ago, whenever Mike said it. Theologian Paul Paul Helm gives us these words. I thought they were helpful. I'm not sure if I included that in your notes, but if not, that's okay. The soul endures the death of the body. Is it then immortal? Yes and no. Scripture points to its immortality, but it is not so immortal that even God could not end the life of a soul. But it is immortal because it is the will of God that it be so. Only God has necessary immortality. He is the source of all immortality in every Immortal creature. So we see this. I'm thinking of a word. Andrew's talked about it before. I forget which chapter. But it starts with the letter D. Talks about how there is like a division of two. Almost close. A division of two things. um, Dichotomy. dichotomy. Very good, James. So. So. There's many out there that would say, well, what about the trichotomy, which if the dichotomy is body and soul, what would the trichotomy be? Body, soul, spirit is the idea of a trichotomy, a biblical principle. What say you? I would argue no. Okay? There is body and there is soul. Okay? Scripture uses almost interchangeably the words soul and spirit. Trichotomy was a pagan idea that came much, much later. Um, You see this with Gnosticism. Gnosticism, they believe and affirm in the trichotomy that the body is not only... That a person is not only body and soul, but also spirit. So dichotomy. This is the word. It's not in there. I threw that in there for free. But other scripture agrees in in the separation of body and soul. I have a few verses here. Listen for me. James 2.26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, also faith apart from works is dead. Body apart from the spirit is dead. Verse 2, Ecclesiastes twelve seven, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So both of these verses here, as well as the parable that we just read in Luke, shows a dichotomy. Soul and spirit, again, are used very often interchangeably so both Lazarus and the rich man they both physically died their bodies buried but their souls live on and go to one of two spiritual places although it's not explicitly mentioned in the text your next blank this is what the confession refers to this is what Sam Dr. Sam Waldron actually refers to it in his book the modern exposition It's what I've always known it to be. But your next blank is and introduces to us the idea of the intermediate state. The intermediate state. This refers to that period or experience of an individual between the time of their physical death and the bodily resurrection someone might say well that sounds a whole lot like purgatory right it's like an intermediate type place and i would say pump the brakes hold on they have similarities in the sense that they're a place that's intermediate but these things are not the same and we'll talk about that in just a second So both men, Lazarus and the rich man, they've died. Lazarus was carried off by the angels, as the guys read a little bit ago. He was taken to Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side where he was comforted. Lazarus was said to be in Hades, being in torment and in anguish. So what awaited both men was a reality that was very similar but very different. Two different places, two different men, some similarities, some differences. One characteristic that was similar is that they were both conscious. They were both conscious. C-O-N-S-C-I-O-U-S. Conscious. We know this from the text. He is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Both were conscious. Comfort, anguish. Your next two blanks, next two characteristics for both men, the similarities is that it's irreversible and eternal. Irreversible and eternal. I list for you there from Luke 16. Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. In order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able. And none may cross from there to us. The rich man could not go to Abraham's bosom. Lazarus could not go to the rich man. It was irreversible. It was eternal. Lazarus reality was a presence with Christ of comfort. And some of you might be saying, well, what's the difference between Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side and paradise? Would anyone like to take a stab at that? Are they one of the same? Are there two different places? Abraham's bosom, Abraham's side Luke 23, 43, where Jesus says, Surely this day you will be with me in paradise. Or are these things one and the same? Why wouldn't you think if Jesus is telling the story, why did he refer to it as Abraham and not himself? These are questions that I've often had. Charlie, you look like you want to say something. He had ascended He hadn't ascended. Charlie, do you think that would be confusing? (laughs) Jesus in the flesh, hasn't yet died, buried, and rose again, was giving, by the way, this parable is the only one of Jesus' parables where he lists an actual name, Lazarus. A lot of of them are, they, they, they mention men, or they mention people, but not specific names, which lens that a lot of theologians would say this is not some hypothetical situation but this is a this is a literal person so charlie's answer to my question is yet jesus had not yet ascended it would be confusing would anyone agree would it be confusing absolutely So it was conscience irreversible and eternal for both men. The confession implies that these realities, either being comforted or being in torment, there was an absence of alternatives, meaning that these are the only two realities save for Christ returning. The confession also mentions other notable passages. If I could get a few readers for these, Philippians 1.23, 2 Corinthians 5.8, and Hebrews 12.23. Once you turn there, go ahead and uh, read for us. I'll
1: take Philippians 23. Thank you, sir. I got Hebrews.
0: Thank you, Justin. I got 2nd. Thank you. Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Thank you, sir.
1: And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in, or who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the Judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect.
0: Thank you, Justin. Uh, yes, we are in
1: good courage, and we'd rather be away from the body than at home with the Lord.
0: All right, thanks, guys. So, what do these passages teach us about the happiness of believers in this intermediate state? Well, the the happiness includes that the souls are now with Christ. They're at home with the Lord. Hebrews tells us that believers are made perfect in holiness. So they are at home with the Lord where believers are made perfect in holiness. This is a part of the blessedness of the believer's death. The believer is to be with Christ, something that Paul looked forward to. Lord willing, most of us look forward to. But also they are made perfect in holiness. Now I mentioned a little bit ago, what are some misconceptions? Ben mentioned um, annihilationism. Uh, Cal, or was it Jason? Purgatory. And then I mentioned soul sleep. So the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory argues that after death, believers must undergo purifying punishment to complete their sanctification to make them worthy of heaven. So, purifying punishment, they believe, is for the believer, not for the unbeliever. So, thinking about Luke 16, the rich man and the Lazarus, how does this parable refute the idea of a purgatory? Who was the believer in this parable? Lazarus. So if purgatory is the idea of a believer undergoing purifying punishment to make himself worthy. Is that what Lazarus is experiencing? Is he experiencing purifying punishment? Absolutely not. Very good. Another idea is soul sleep. This argues that souls of the dead, both believer and unbeliever, are unconscious during the time of their death and the general resurrection. So how does this parable of the rich man and Lazarus refute the doctrine of soul sleep? Soul sleep is where they're unconscious. Think about rich man and Lazarus. Would an unconscious state be what that parable described? Sierra, were they conscious? Yes, absolutely they were. I saw your head bobbing up and down so I had to call you out. Um, You did so well. So both men were conscious. The rich man was conscious in torment. Lazarus was conscious in comfort. Soul sleep is refuted because... It believes that the soul is unconscious. Another unorthodox doctrine is annihilationism, which Ben talked about a little bit ago. It's the belief that the impenitent or the unrepentant, either immediately after death or after some period of punishment, will be annihilated by God and will cease to exist. So how does the parable of the rich man and Lazarus Refute the idea that souls of the damned ceased to exist. The rich man was in pain and he was still there and he didn't just stop existing. Amen. Very good, Andrew. Thank you, sir. So the rich man had no end to his suffering. And even ask Abraham to send someone to his brothers to warn them. How are we doing on time? Got like a few minutes. Wonderful. All right. Maybe we need to extend this Sunday school hour, guys. Or maybe not have long-winded teachers. One of the two. So the final change, paragraphs 2 and 3. Could I have somebody read paragraphs 2 and 3? And they don't have to be the same person. It could be two different people. Paragraphs 2 and 3 of chapter 31. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am.
2: At the last day, such of such of the saints that are found alive shall not sleep, but be changed, and all the dead shall be raised up with the self same bodies, and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. Thank you, Russ. The bodies of the unjust shall, by the power of Christ, be raised to dishonor; the
0: bodies of the just, by His Spirit, unto honor. Comfortable to his own glorious body. Thank you very much. So now we're talking about the final change. And I've broken it up with two categories for those who are alive on the last day, for those who are already dead on the last day. The confession, by way of Scripture, teaches that only saints physically alive That only saints physically survive, rather, Christ's second coming. They will not pass through death, but receive a glorified body and existence. On your own time, I would love it if you went to the passages that I have for you, that 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, and 2 Corinthians, to read more about how these scriptures support what the confession teaches, how the saints physically survive Christ's second coming. For those who are already dead, under point B, paragraph 2 says, all the dead shall be raised. This shows that the confession teaches the doctrine of the general resurrection of all men, Paragraph 3 further qualifies all men, explaining that this includes the bodies who have already passed of the just and the unjust, or the righteous by way of Christ and the unrighteous. Revelation 20, Matthew 25, go there in your own time if you would, you can read more about those scriptures, supports that idea. For those who have already died on the last day, what about our resurrection bodies? I mean, just the idea of having a resurrection glorified bodies sounds pretty neat to think about, does it not? I mean, whenever you read about what Jesus and what what he did, what he could do after he uh, rose from the dead will not be exactly like that because he's God and we are not. But still, there are some things that we can take from these passages, but there's a lot of confusion with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15:44. I'll get that in just a second. So the final change is not a spiritual resurrection. But it's the physical life committed to the ground is the same body that is resurrected. The body is not dead, but it is alive. First Corinthians 15, 35 through 38. It's not a spiritual resurrection or a or a ethereal resurrection. It's bodily and material So Paul in 1 Corinthians fifteen forty four he goes, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body with spiritual bodies. Anthony Okima mentions this to help us. The resurrection body of the believer will be like the resurrection body of Christ. His body was a physical one. He could be touched and he could also eat food. So it's not a spiritual resurrection, but a physical one. Sam Waldron also says here, The term spiritual describes the new body as ruled and energized by the Holy Spirit. It's a body that is associated with God and reflecting a divine virtue and power in a way surpassing the earthly body. So it is going to be your earthly body, but better. It's not going to be a spiritual resurrection. It's going to be a physical resurrection. And concluding very quickly, what about the resurrection or the final change of the unjust? Well scripture comments less frequently on this topic, even more so than of the final change of the righteous. Daniel twelve two refers to it as a resurrection of shame. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. John five twenty-eight through 29 speaks of the unjust resurrection as a resurrection of judgment rather than life. The terrifying reality is that the unjust are raised not to life, but to death. Whenever you think about the word resurrection, you think about restoration. And there is no restoration whatsoever that they will experience. For the unjust, death is not a refuge from God. They will be raised and stand before him. And his great white throne. Beloved, let me uh, pray for us really fast to close out this section of chapter 31. Thank you so much for your attentiveness and your participation. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much again for the opportunity to come here to open up your word, to learn, to be encouraged. Lord, about what will await your saints. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us. Lord, we thank you that you have stepped down off of your throne, Jesus. You have provided us a way to be reconciled to the Father. Lord, you have, Jesus, you have given us a righteousness that is not our own. So that we can stand before him where we will be comforted after death. We'll be spending time face to face with our Savior. Lord, I pray that this helps. This reality helps us worship you more. Lord, I pray that this reality of the unjust will motivate us to share the gospel. Because we know from your word what Judgment will await them. One that is not restorative, but one that is condemning shame, contempt, agony, pain. Lord, thank you for the life that you give us in Christ. May we have hope. May we worship you. May we serve you and the kingdom because of this wonderful reality that we have. We thank you so much for Jesus. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.